Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and thanks for joining us as we shine a spotlight on Stages. With over 230 episodes in the Stages archive, it's time to revisit conversations featured in previous seasons. Stages spotlight such episodes in case you missed them the first time round, or so you can simply savour a second listen. Either way, you'll be accessing precious oral histories from the people who were there, on and around our stages. Mark Morrissey is one of the elders of the agent profession in Australia. Now in his 36th year, Morrissey Management represents and guides the careers of many of our finest actors on local and world stages. Morrissey began his career as an actor in television shows like Rafferty's Rules, Sons and Daughters and Prisoner, a perfect vantage point to garner essential experience by observing work behind the camera. The knowledge acquired would inform his ambition and understanding, ultimately propelling him into a position as one of the country's best. A meeting with Mark is met with charm, calm and a keen desire to contribute to an ever-evolving industry. Um, so yes, it's, it's a really great space here. How long have you been here? Been here for 10 years. Um, my accountant found the place when we were in Bondi Junction. I really wanted a, a warehouse where I could work and live because there's a three-bedroom apartment out the back there. Oh, right. right. So yeah. you sort of live on premises? Yeah. And then, you know, on weekends, I'm lucky enough to be able to sneak away to the northern beaches. So it's kind of perfect. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, very open plan and industrial yeah. chic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was yeah. That was the plan, and that's what we've tried. The the open plan is all about communication, though. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's all about agents and, and managers and people sharing information and listening in every now and then, and seeing they can contribute towards the the information flow. Right. Uh, have you got a big staff? Um, I only got ten. Um, you know, keep it simple. Um, we've got um, a talent division, obviously, and then we've got a literary division representing writers and directors, um, a voiceover division, and I've got my production company. Right. Yeah. So, me, irons in the fire. Yeah. Uh, your job obviously requires you to read a lot of scripts and, and watch a lot of things. Um, do you get a chance to actually do it for pleasure? Um, I'd like to say I, I do, but I don't as much. Around Christmas periods, I tend to try and switch off and read books that I like. But even then, I, I read a book um, last Christmas that was a bestseller and one of those wonderful just enjoy. And I loved the book so much I optioned it. So, oh. <laughs> so what started off as pleasure became work. Yeah, and it all intertwines because work still is pleasure for me. I still enjoy so many aspects of what we do here. Um, you know, I never quite know what's around the corner. Just like an actor or a creative, you you wake up and you don't know what is about to occur. And I've always welcomed and celebrated that. I enjoy that. Um, the anticipation of what could. So reading, yeah, read a lot of scripts, um, read an enormous amount of scripts. Uh, but again, I feel I'm blessed with that because mm. it gives me, I'm, I'm lucky enough to represent a number of uh, clients that have done very well overseas. 
and I'm part, I continue to be part of the team for those international clients. So when they're sent scripts, the team all has an opinion about the script. So I get to read the very, very best scripts on offer on the planet on a, on a weekly basis. So that's enabled me to, to improve my, my reading skills to a point where I, I can get a sense from a script very early on whether it's going to be a good script or, or perhaps not. So I, I count my blessings with the scripts. I, I still love them. Every now and then, every now and then you get a script that you know isn't going to be what you'd hope to be, but you have to read it for the person. So every now and then that's a slog. Right, so you actually read right through. You know, we hear people saying, oh, I read the first three pages, didn't grab me, so I, I passed. No, well, you I'm persist. not... I'm, I try to because I know what it's like mm. um, to write something. You pour your heart into it and, and to get some sort of honest, reasonable fee- feedback is, I, I think, really important. Yeah. Were you a reader as a kid? Yes, avid, yes. That's, that was my sanctuary. I was a, a fairly quiet child. Um, and I used to read everything, everything. Um, it's a great escape, isn't it? It's yeah, a, a my, my, my give you give you an idea of where my where I was with as a young fella. I had two budgerigars, and their names were Philip K. Dick and Ursula Le Guin, <laughs> and that was the age of ten years old. You know, I was I was devouring science fiction at an early stage, and then. Um, it, it morphed into all sorts of wonderful areas. So that was always there. And what about uh, the movies? Uh, um, after the cinema frequently? or No, no, we, we, we really couldn't afford to do that on a regular basis. The, the, the first cinema experience I can remember was through the school and I went and saw um, a classical... English piece it probably was to do with the curriculum of yep. what we were studying at the time so it would maybe be about 13 14 and <clears throat> it was I think it was Peter O'Toole that was in it or it was one or Richard Burton or it was one of those magnificent Lawrence of Arabia or something no no it was an English uh, medieval piece and I think it was one of the classics, one of yeah. Shakespeare's classics. Yeah. But I and for all seasons or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and I can remember um, sitting in that beautiful cinema in Melbourne, in the city, and just that opened my world. I, I wanted to learn more about that voice and learn more about the, the, the joy he was. None of my other mates got, got it at all. And I kept it very quiet to myself. But that's my first memory of... This is extraordinary. I want to be part of this. So you're a Melbourne boy? Yeah. yeah. Born and bred. Dad played for Footscray, so I'm Melbourne royalty. Dad played for um, the Bulldogs. Uh, was a full back in the semi-finals in, I think, 48, 49. I should know that. Um, so I, the day I was born, he walked down to Foot, Footscray Football Club and signed me in to be a footballer. And sadly, I, I never took to the game. I was hopeless. I was hopeless. Um, had no idea, no real understanding of AFL football. 
Have you uh, developed an appreciation? Oh, now I love it. Now I, I, I sort of gravitated towards golf, and I, I, I then became a, an assistant professional golfer and trained for three years in Melbourne, and wanted to go on tour. But um, sadly, the swing wasn't strong enough, and couldn't afford the proper golf clubs that you needed during that time to mm. to do what you needed to do. So, uh, but golf was the thing that my dad and I shared. What was the arts experience like at school? Did you participate in the school plays or no, no, bands? No, no, absolutely no. Didn't learn an instrument? No, no. nothing, nothing. I, the very first play I saw, I was 19 years old. I didn't see a play until I was 19. Wow. And it was Metamorphosis yeah. at Melbourne Theatre Company. Right. And it had the same slap in the face effect on me as did that, that film. No, we, we were very um, working class. Um, and very sports focused too, I guess. We very, yeah, we were. Great, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, uh, it was a very, you know, reasonably safe, um, reasonable family life and sports based and very simple. The arts, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, you became an actor, of course. I, this is this is a story that I'm sure I've changed along the way, but <laughs> I was working in a public bar um, doing odds and sods jobs, and one of my mates who worked in another bar said he wanted to go and audition for the National Theatre in, in St Kilda. In St Kilda. Yep. And uh, I, I had the car, so I drove him there, and he said, come in and just sit in the foyer, and I'll go do whatever I'm going to do and see how I go. So I went into this beautiful old theatre. You, you probably know the, the big the, old yeah, theatre. Absolutely, it's beautiful. Yeah, there. Yeah. Um, There's still a school there too. There is, yeah. yeah. And we walked in and I sat in the big old leather um, chairs or all the mishmash of furniture that was in the foyer then. And he went in, did his interview, and he came out. And this woman appeared that had just interviewed him. And her name was Joan Harris. Who was married to Frederick Parslow? Yeah. yeah. And Joan walked out and she took one look at me and looked me up and down and said, so what's your story? And I blushed because I still, I, I used to blush all the time. I was a very quiet, introverted kid. Um, and she invited me in. We started talking and she changed my life from that point she invited me to join the National Theatre. My mate didn't get in. I did. I'd never seen a play. I'd never seen a performance. I didn't know anything. And there was a hundred of us that got into, a hundred that got into first year. And there was four of us that graduated in third year. Wow. Yeah. It's a funny story that you hear that so often, I think, that the mate who goes along to support his actor friend and then ends up actually... I know, I know. ...working in the limelight. Uh, um, and so Joan Harris um, became probably one of the, the, the strongest voices in my life and remained there um, throughout. You know, she encouraged me to see plays that's she I think she even paid for me to go see metamorphosis she um, I, I could never afford the fees because mm. I was working part-time in pubs or wherever I could and she she she'd finance me to get through when I couldn't afford the fees she'd pay and you know in, in I think in third year when things were really tight for me and she could see that there was a developing 
something within me. Um, she got me to work on a Saturday morning uh, being um, an assistant to the teachers. And there, and I saw yet another side of the business yeah, through yeah. that. So she changed everything for me from that one meeting. We're lucky to have great champions like that, aren't we? If we, if we manage to score one. I, I never, ever would be what I am if it wasn't for her. Mm. No. So what did your folks think of uh, their son sort of going off to join the arts? Look, the, our relationship was always very distant, so I don't actually think they cared right. that much. I left I left home at uh, just under 16 years old. I left oh. home when I was 15 and three quarters, and I... Um, worked, you know, in various jobs at a clothing place, and then I lied and got myself a job in um, uh, in a bar, saying I was eighteen when I was sixteen and a half, and I stayed right. there for about now, so uh, about a year and a half. So I, I don't think they really had any opinion about it. The only time my father ever went and saw me in something. Um, he left at the end of the play and I found a little note stuck under my windscreen of my car after the play which said um, you did well but you, you could have polished your boots <laughs> and he meant it that wasn't him yeah, being, being a joke. ironic mm. that was him so he was a fairly tough man so what sort of acting gigs did you have after graduation from Nashville? Um, I got commercials. I got um, Prisoners, Sons and Daughters, Anzacs. I got a whole bunch of, of projects um, that, to be honest, Peter, I don't think I was particularly good. Yeah, right. I had, I, I blundered into things and I tried my best, but I didn't really have the tools to understand how to, to do work on television because I'd never worked there before. Um, there weren't any screen classes. There weren't. There wasn't anything like that. You just simply had to learn on the spot. I guess there's only those production houses like Crawford's. Crawford's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I guess they were still trying to work it all out as we, well. We were all, you were all mm. stumbling around in the dark, and um, you know, I may do. Um, I was very lucky to work with some wonderful people, but um, I, I met a girl in Melbourne, and she just been the lead in a film called Getting a Wisdom and oh. uh, her agent was Sidney Bruce Beresford wasn't Bruce Beresford yeah. yeah and she'd just done the, the worldwide tour that's another story she told me she was in this this movie and I went oh that's cool thinking you know she got a, a day or two in the film and it wasn't until we were six months into the relationship that I thought I'd better go and see this film <laughs> and she's the lead in the whole film right um, so she, her agent was in Sydney, so we decided to move up to Sydney together. And that's when work dried up for me. Of course. I couldn't because you were a new face, I guess, I and there were a lot face. of established actors already. I had, I had a Melbourne agent, but I couldn't really find my way to, to get representation up here in Sydney. Eventually, I, I ended up with a, an agency. Um, and... I just found myself gravitating towards needing a little more control in my life than the life of an actor. Um, I always felt that everyone around me was a better actor than I was, but I was very, very good at organising, at constructing, at, at creating environments for people so that they could 
perform. So even back in school, in drama school, I was the one that always organised all of the cabarets that made the money. Right. Uh, and so uh, from that early stage, I Gushing, think um, I was learning. You're a producer. Yeah, yeah. I was. Pro- yeah, I was producing from an early stage without knowing what the term was. So we're talking the seventies at the moment. God, I think when it's, you were, um, it would be late seventies, early eighties. Early eighties. Yeah. yeah. So, who were the agents around at the time? How, how did you get representation? Did um, they come see a showcase, or in Melbourne, were there many yeah. agents? There, there was. Um, gorgeous man from Melbourne, Melbourne Artist Management. His name was Gary, it'll come to me. Um, But I was approached by a woman called Lorraine West who was running um, an agency called the Actors Agency. And uh, she started repping me. And that worked well for quite a while until I moved up to Sydney. And when I moved up to Sydney, they had no real reach up here. Mind you, they were representing magnificent people. They had Guy Pearce and Ben Mendelssohn and, and Nadine Garner and a whole, just a, a, the best of the best at that time. Um, so it was late on a Thursday afternoon. I was in Sydney. I, not much work was happening as an, as an actor. And an old friend, one of my drama student graduate friends came up. And on a Thursday, and we sat around talking and drinking a little bit probably a little too much as you do and by late that Thursday night we'd come up with an idea that I should open up a Sydney branch of the Melbourne agency that I was represented by so I called Lorraine on the Friday Uh, we talked it through and then we opened on the Tuesday of the following week Wow! no business plan no concept, no training. Uh, it's not something you could do now. No, no, no. Um, and I opened the doors, and the aim was that I simply represented their Melbourne clients that happened to be working in Sydney. So again, it was another introduction for me to learn about what profile actors needed and what, On the were, job. The, what were the challenges. Yeah. yeah. So I ran that for, I think, about five, six years. Would many agencies have had a Melbourne and Sydney office? No, 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 they didn't, no. Um, And then, um, yeah, broke away and decided I didn't want to be riding on the the coattails of somebody else's agency and name. And Lorraine and I parted amicably and I set up Morrissey Management. Yeah. And that's where it all started. Fabulous. Tell me about Gloria Payton, because she was, she was an early agent also. Gloria she? Payton's agency, uh, uh, what was it, ICS, International Casting Services, ICS, she was a force to, to reckon with, and she actually represented my girlfriend, who had been the lead. Getting a Wisdom. Getting a Wisdom. And um, her office used to call our home number in Melbourne on a regular basis with castings for my girlfriend. And the girl on the on the phone was one of the assistants of Gloria's. So you very very seldom got to speak with Gloria. I gather she was the the head of the agency. Um, but the girl that was on the end of the phone was Lisa Mann. Oh wow! 
So Lisa and I caught up recently, and we, we go back that far. We go back almost 35 years. It was Lisa Mann who's got her own management company. Of now. course, Lisa Mann Creative uh, Management. But uh, Gloria was an innovator. I think she was, she came from the old school of the agent's opinion was always heightened, was always of a higher, higher status, that she, she appeared to um, work very, very well and, and had a great reputation in the industry. Um, and I believe it might be urban myth, but I even believe that her surname wasn't her surname. Right. Gloria Payton, as in paid 10%. <laughs> Don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a great urban myth if it is. Yeah. Uh, so people like her and, and your agent, did they come from acting backgrounds? How did they find their way into most representing? Of the, most agents that I met in Sydney had come from casting where they'd been casting agents or a casting agent's assistant that assistant would speak to agents on a regular basis you get to know the assistant would get be educated on the job by learning actors by learning directors writers producers projects reading scripts and it was a logical extension for them to go from um, being a casting potentially to being an agent's assistant and working their way up from there mm. But not me. What about casting directors? They were. Did they exist then? I mean, how how were yes, actors well, sourced? Well, yeah. Um, Faith Martin, uh, oh, okay, who yes, is a casting agent now, she actually set up. Originally, it was Martin Shanahan. Right. So she she went she reversed engineered. She was an agent at one stage, and then she segued into being a casting agent. So she would work with Bill Shanahan. Yeah. 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 So um, casting agents, fascinating work that they do. And Susie Maisel. Susie Maisel's. You know, they all were able to assess skills, I imagine, that they had. And that is, they need, if it's a television commercial casting agent, they need to be able to navigate the world of advertising and what advertising agents want, and what their creative department wants, and then find the right fit of actors for those roles. Feature film and television is slightly different because I think I would suggest that the creating brief is a lot more open, um, a lot more collaborative. So some were set up specifically to do television commercials, some were film and television. But obviously, film was during that time. Film was everything. You did television to pay the rent, but to get a film that was extraordinary. To have yeah. a film career, absolutely. Um, with great respect, you would have to be one of the elders of of the agency. Yeah, it's in weird Australia. that somebody <laughs> says that because I don't feel it. I've been doing it for thirty four years now. Yeah, right. yeah. It's 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 strange to be thought of that way, but. I catch myself in the mirror often, and <laughs> as long as the mirror doesn't go any lower than my chest, I look I look reasonable. But if it's a full length that you get in a hotel room, you know, mm. Oh, mm. then you realise that you really are an elder. And do you look at you and suddenly see your father, or no, no, thank God, you don't, right? Okay, no, <laughs> no, I don't see him. Um, I I am um, along the way. Many have retired because it, it's a tough business. I was going to say, yeah. It's long hours too, I guess. It, well, it never stops. You, hmm. you, you don't stop. I've now put 
boundaries around my weekends. But, for instance, what are we? What's today? Monday. Right. So, um, last week, um, I was out. I worked, uh, you know, normal 8.30 through to, what, 6, 6.30, and I went out on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to functions of clients. Right. So you've got to be able and willing to put those hours in. And thankfully, um, they're all wonderful projects. But along the way, people have left it because it's it's hard. Also, I guess if you're dealing also with the States or the UK, you're operating in a different time frame as well. I, you've I, got to be ready for those calls. Yeah, my early mornings, when I've, I've got American work, I started about 5.30. So I'll, I'll have a coffee, wake up, and do the calls from 6 through to... 8am and then if it's London I start work with London agents from about 9pm onwards right. mm. you must love actors I I love act what actors can do and create I'm still you know astounded and surprised I still the other night I, I was late to the party but I saw a series called Mr. In Between and I just marvelled at what these guys were doing. Just marvelled at it. Mm. You know, um, Scott Ryan, who wrote and uh, uh, wrote and starred in it, created the whole concept, and Nash Edgerton, what they've created is is just stunning television. You know, I binged, I couldn't turn it off. And then in the last episode, um, Matt Nabel, walks into the last episode and seriously I was watching Australian magic in front of my eyes with these two magnificent actors Scott Ryan who I have no idea where he came from and Matt Nabel who's been around and done great work just watching what they were doing couldn't get it any better on the planet this was this was international entertainment that I was watching so I'm still thrilled for those moments where you, you your breath just gets taken away or you get excited you know, I emailed, uh, I text Matt. I don't even represent the guy. I just wanted to say, Great. astounding, mm. Matt. You know, I'm texting at like 11.30 at night. And I can't believe what I've just watched. So, yeah, it still excites me. It still mm. gives me lots of energy. It still um, motivates me. Yeah. In a time before mobile phones and email, etc. How difficult was it to sort of stay in touch with your, with your actors or did they, did they call in God. once a week? It, it wasn't so much staying in touch with the actors because they just called and you talked. Yeah. That was simple. Or they'd pop in. Or they'd, and they always understood the rigours of it. If they called in, either they caught you at a quiet day where you could have a cup of tea or coffee or if it was busy, they just sat there and I didn't talk to them because it was busy. But the, the, the faxing, because you had to get your scripts and you had to fax your scripts to your actors right. so you'd be up till nine ten o'clock at night faxing out Feeding page by page right. for any, any of your lung, young listeners they won't understand what i'm talking about but you had to uh yeah stand by the fax machine for literally an hour two hours making sure that they all went through to the client and you'd have to ensure that um, you had enough paper. Enough paper. End. I was just about to say that. <laughs> you, you know, it's about time to finally wrap it up and it's 10 o'clock at night and you run out of paper. Mm. Um, so it was, 
it's it's now a far more um, clean, quick, efficient system. But what I do miss is that personal contact. I do. I guess because there's not the need for actors to come in so much to no, collect things or no, or touch even base. talk. Yeah. You know, often the whole conversation could be on a text or an email, and I miss that. Yeah. Um, you hear stories of Marlon Brando, who, of no fixed address, who was in rehearsal for Streetcar and he'd just go missing and nobody knew where he was. And then he'd turn up and... Oh, I've had clients like that. Um, I believe there's a story about John Hurt, the English actor. Well, yes. Um, uh, I, I represented Bill Hunter um, just after he came, he came off doing a massive campaign for uh, BHP, the big Australian. And... He was in between agents, and I remember calling, and he was a superstar in my eyes, and, oh, st- and still is. The great Bill Hunter, yeah. Um, and I called him at home, and I was, this is really early stages of being an agent, and said, you know, Mr. Hunter, just want to introduce myself, um, if ever you're open for a discussion, representation, I'd love to talk to you. And he just fired Harry M. Miller, who was oh. another god in the industry. Mm. Um, and he apparently got off the phone and he spoke to his wife and he said, you know, some, some whippersnipper just called me for God's sake. What do you think of that? And she said, well, he called you, didn't he? He reached out to you. It's pretty impressive. He got on the phone. He went, yeah, okay, I'll go over chat. So he came into the office and we chatted and we instantly bonded. I, I adored every minute I had with Bill Hunter. Every you know, painful, heartbreaking, joyous moment I had with him. I loved every moment. And he came in, we talked for about two hours. And at the end of it, he said, Rudder, hand me that piece of paper. And he wrote our contract, which I've still got framed here. He wrote our contract, which we both signed there and then. He hand wrote it. What made him so charismatic and and such a good actor? I mean, because he's a sort of bloke that you'd walk into any pub and see him at the bar and just Mr... I suppose he was Mr Everyman, wasn't he? That was... That was his value. Mm. That was that was his heart. Because, yes, he had a drinking problem. He had a drinking problem all his life. But he would go to bars and he'd sit in bars and the stories, the hu- human stories, would come up to him and talk about their lives and talk about what had happened, all their problems. And he would, like a sponge, take all of that on board. And he wasn't trained. He he, he picked up a job as um, um, a double for uh, Gregory Peck in On the Beach. There was a swimming scene uh, which Gregory Peck asked him, supposedly, I don't believe this for a moment. <laughs> but uh, he got the job and then he got the bug and grew from there but Bill had even though he obviously drank way too much um, he had a mind like I'll never ever meet again mm. he remembered every tiny small detail sober or drunk didn't matter and so he'd be able to recount stories and and he was a great raconteur um, and my only regret in our relationship is I didn't actually get him to do the biography 
that yeah. I really wanted. I got an advance from a publishing company right? and I couldn't find him. He just went bush because I think maybe some of the stories he realised would he'd be caught out that they weren't actually true. But uh, I had to give to, I think we had to give that bond back at some stage. But uh, that was an extraordinary relationship. So we did Priscilla, we did Muriel's wedding, we did everything together. Strictly ballroom. Uh, strictly yeah. ballroom. I, 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 you know, we created an environment where he never auditioned when he joined me. I said, you'll never audition again from now on. I only will accept offers for you. Um, and we set up a precedence and uh, he, the, the best, Peter, the best moment of my life, because as much as I gave Bill money, he would spend it within 24 hours, it was gone. And I mean huge amounts of money, mm. gone. Mm. And so I learned along the way and I went, well, I'm just not gonna pay him. I'm gonna put it in a trust account and I'm gonna pay him an amount of money on a weekly basis. Yeah. Uh, and just say I'm advancing it was actually coming from his own account but it was the only way for me to keep him alive because otherwise he would he wouldn't be with us Mm. anyway um, he did a thing called uh, Finding Nemo which was a beautiful story in itself how he did Finding Nemo and the residual money came in and I flew down to Melbourne and he was living in Ballarat and Peter he was living in the back of a pub in a room with no toilet and it had no floor. It was a dirt floor in Ballarat. Wow. He had nothing. Because I think he was a Ballarat boy. I think he might have grown up there. Spent everything, all gone. And it, all gone. So I said to him, you know, um, nice, there's some nice places around Ballarat. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I jumped in my car, I had a hire car, we drove around. And we, we saw this farm. He said, I've had my eye on that farm. And he always was a dream. I had my eye on that farm. And I said, really? So without him, without knowing, I started negotiating the deal for the, the, the farm for Bill on his behalf. And I flew down a week later and handed him the keys and the deed. It was the first property he'd ever owned in his life. Wow. We bought it outright, obviously with his authority, I said, this is what I've been planning. This is for you. And it was the best moment ever. Brilliant. Yeah. Best moment. Mind you, he then started calling me every week after that going, you know, I've got a chook shed that I really need to build. And that chook shed, I reckon, cost about 50000 <laughs> I went down there at some stage. There was no chook shed. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, all, that all got started with John Hurt. Yeah, he went, um, John Hurt was, I think, in Sydney shooting a film and I got a call from late at night from John Hurt's agent in the UK saying, um, my client's gone missing and I think I know the reason he's with your client. <laughs> Do you, can you find them because he's two days behind in the shoot on the film? So I did... I did the scan out and, and just called all of the friends, all of the family of friends, and we eventually found them. I can't remember where we found them. I know that I'm in the middle of Australia somewhere, and we got him back and he was able to finish the film. Great story, old actors. Yeah. 
So for the uninitiated that might be listening, can you define what it is that an agent actually does? I mean, you've touched on it talking so far, but... Our job, our main job, is to find work for actors that we choose to represent. That That's what it comes down to. We've got to create every opportunity, every environment we can for the actor to go for as much good work as they possibly can. Then it's over to the actor to get the job. Then it's back to us once they've got the job to build upon that. I love momentum for actors. So it's wonderful when an actor starts working or gets a job because you can build on on that because it's another thing to talk about with casting agents or producers or directors. They're working. They may be available. They may be not. But our job primarily is we've got to find work at all costs. Um, And that's what when I was referring back to, I miss the times when you used to be able to talk with your clients more because when you talk to them, it gives you a sense of sometimes urgency. You, you hear in their voice, you listen to them, and that gives you extra motivation. You know, if, if, if casting says that we're not interested in that suggestion, your actor for that role, if you've had a conversation with them and they really need the job, um, you'll go back again and again and again to, to um, find the work for them. But I guess you'll get an understanding too of what their focus is, whether they just want to focus on stage yeah. performance or Yeah, not many now. No. They're no. all going for the, the film. They're all they go for everything. You know, everyone needs to work. And there's nothing like a jobbing actor. There's nothing like an actor that goes from job to job. You know, fills them with um, joy about themselves and gives them self confidence and it helps them in the next um, job that they go for the next audition they go for if they're working they they carry this marvelous energy in with them into the next screen test yeah. how does an actor obtain an agent there's a number of resources that act, uh, agents trust and that is a recommendation from a casting agent or a producer or a director um, some of the full-time schools or some of the schools in general, there's some that are, are not full-time, but some graduate performances, going to see actors in, in live performances, viewing their tapes that they do. Um, all of those are processes that all agents go through. Um, we, as a collective here at Morrissey's, um, try to do that once a week. We combine all of our experiences of who we've met and seen and done and um, invite the actor in after there's a consensus that there's something there that's special. So... um, I guess you also have to see... It's a bit like a marriage. You've got to both suss each other out as to whether you can collaborate and work together. Yeah, it's really, really really important too because that that relationship, the, the trust needs to be there to start with and then you just keep building on it after that. Now, so what do you look for in a prospective client? How long have I been doing this now? Yeah, it's still. I mean, we talk about that that X factor. How do you recognise that X factor that separates them from, you know, a hundred other actors? I I think it's a mixture 
of intelligence and humour. Um, there are some actors that, in person, in an interview, don't project what you're looking for or, or what you believe they are. Sometimes their work belies completely what they are as people. Um, I still cannot answer that, but I can tell you that I've got to the point now where I can see something in about 10 to 15 seconds in yeah. a screen test. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after it 34 can, years. It can be obviously. it can be a voice um, a, a voice rhythm or a timber. It it can be it I think more than anything though, it's an intelligence. Mm. And I'm talking not it's an emotional, an emotional, an emotional intelligence. intelligence. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 and you know, and every, every one of them are so very, very, very different. And there's also truth that you're looking for in those tests. That often with graduates after three years training, you have to break down their training to get them to deliver the truth of the scene that you're looking for because they're so caught up in technique. Mm. Um, but I don't think I can answer that question for you because no, I, I think that's that's beautifully know. explained. I, I can actually, if somebody walks in and sits in our waiting room, yeah. I, I can get a sense from them. Yeah, an aura. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. What um, what financial cost is it to an actor to have representation? Well, there there isn't a no. cost apart, and it's all become a lot easier these days. They would need to join whatever online casting services um, that their agent works with. Um, so the cost of that, cost of photographs, really, that's it, and staying alive in between auditions. Yeah. And, of course, there's the... We talked about Gloria Payton. <laughs> is, is that still the thing, that agents normally... That's a the agents arrangement? Agents still are legislated um, 10% for an agent, a manager... Um, can charge extra because an agency's the determination of what an agency is and a manager is an agent can take on a lot of clients can have sometimes over 100 200 clients whereas a manager tends to keep the numbers very small so that they can give that client whatever extra time they need they can read the scripts uh, I've, I've been both in my time, I, I've been an agent and I've been a manager and being a manager tends to work more for me now. Mm. That may be after 34 years, though. It's just um, having fewer clients that I can focus on is probably all I'm capable of now, Peter. <laughs> um, indulge me here. Yeah. Um, you, you've been to Hollywood and you've obviously worked and met a lot of agents over there. Mm. My impression of a Hollywood agent is is framed, I guess, by that TV series Entourage and that fabulous character of Ari Gold. Have you ever seen Entourage? Yeah. Jeremy Priven, I think, yeah. was the actor. I, often, I, often I felt like Entourage. <laughs> I've, I've had experiences that are absolutely the same as that, almost like taken from my life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, um, that energy of Ari, um, you know, based on... Ari Emanuel, uh, I, I don't witness that 
any very much more. I don't witness the the pumped up pounding. Well, I suppose now there's workplace um, guidelines. Everyone is very very polite in Hollywood. Right. I'm I'm there in uh, ten days' time again for another series of meetings, and they're very polite. They're ruthlessly polite. Right. Well, that's nice. That's good to hear. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Is it daunting going over there for the first time? Was it? How, how long have you been going to Hollywood now? I, I've been going for 18 years now. Oh, okay. 19 so, years. Yeah. I, I try... It is daunting. And, and I try and go with clients on their first trip. But these, these days, um, actors, graduating actors, are far more savvy. And... Um, They've got friends that have done that, so that information is filtered back to them about the process and right. what to do and where to stay and how to conduct yourself. So they're, they're far more educated about the process now than used to be. There's a huge population of Australian actors over there now, isn't there? I mean, the, you think those early days of Mel Gibson and Judy Davis. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's changing as well hmm. um, because there's the need to actually be in L.A., isn't as important any longer because the industry is now relying on self-tapes. Right. A casting agent doesn't have as much time or as dedicated time for personal auditions. So what they've now done is set up the ability to be able to maybe watch 50 self-tapes for this one character as opposed to meeting five people in the one day. Um, so the actor can be living anywhere. Uh, I, this very room, I've had actors audition, test, and get roles for English series, an American series, uh, whilst living and pulling a beer or making a cappuccino around the corner. There must be a skill, though, to doing an effective self-tape. Absolutely. There is, and that's just practice. But we don't... We get all self-tapes first to us before we send them. They're not good enough. We don't send them. Right. We go back to the actor and do it again. Yeah, and say you 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 can do better, or the lighting wasn't right, the sound wasn't right. Um, have a look at the character's work. I guess there's a whole industry too with um, photographers popping up. Well, doing but just about every everybody does their own now. Yeah, yeah. We've got a wonderful client, Callum Colley, who's come up with this ingenious uh, self-test kit for eight hundred bucks, and it's got. It's got a blue screen. It's got a. Uh, it's it all fits into a backpack. You can do it all yourself. Marvelous stuff. Right. Um, with the advent of self tapes, does that mean there's uh, an abundance of all of that stuff to look at now, or can you be? You, yeah, you just have to be very selective, I guess, in um, who comes through. There's a, an abundance of self tests. You mean? Yeah. Or there, there's a lot of self-test, mm. especially around pilot season, which yeah, is, of course. you know, late January through to April. So just to explain for the listener too what pilot season is. Uh, well, again, that is ever so changing with the advent of, of Netflix and, and Amazon. But there was a period between uh, late January through to early April. And in America... That is when they used to test and cast most of the pilots that would be made for American television for that year. So there was a glut of auditions and roles available between that period, and it was chaos. It was chaos. Um, I 
went over with a client once and we were doing um, four to five auditions in person a day. So I was driving him from project to project, cast, go to the next one. We did that for two weeks solid where we'd be doing anywhere between three and five auditions a day. Right. We were sharing the same uh, hotel room to lower the costs yeah. and I'd be you know, practicing his lines with him wow. while he was trying to learn each different character in each different scene. Um, so that pilot season has, has now, there's more. That was during the time when maybe, you know, maybe 30 television projects were being financed in America. Now you're looking at 420, 450 projects um, being created and produced and pilots being shot. So it's a very different animal now. So the pilot then goes to the studio heads, yep. I guess. Yep. You, yeah. And they decide whether it they gets decide the whether it's going to go to the series. Right. Yeah. Gee, there's lots of steps and stages, isn't there? Before yeah, because, you actually and, and as can an relax. actor, as an actor, you you audition for that. Let's say you put on hold for that. You do the the pilot, awesome. But then you can't work. You're on a first option basis for when the pilot finishes, which let's say is April, until it's picked up, which could be as late as October, November. So there's a period there where you have to understand that you may not be able to go for other work. Right, you're on, locked in. On the, on the off chance that this project may or may not be picked up for a television series. So it's... I guess there's a potential thing also. The, the, the heads look at it and think, oh, yeah, we love it, we'll, we'll green light it, but you've got to recast that actor. Oh, and that happens all the time. It's yeah. heartbreaking. Yeah. I've had to make a couple of those calls. It is heartbreaking. They did the pilot, but they don't want you for the series. Yeah. So I'm sure that is hard. So how, how do you let down an actor like that? There's, you've just got to rip the band-aid off, I guess. You can't. It's bad I news th- regardless. I think, I think if the actor understands that it means almost as much to you yeah, as the agent yeah, yeah. or manager as it means to them because you are together on it. You know, when when an actor does a great audition, you view the audition, you go, that's stunning, man. You, that's beautiful, beautiful work, what you're just doing there. It goes through to the casting agent. Casting agent comes back and says, she just killed it. She, What a beautiful piece of work she just did. You go back to your, your wonderful actor, every excitement, you start negotiating the deal, awesome, fingers crossed, and you're, you're holding your breath too for it to be picked up. When it doesn't get picked up, like something happened to me uh, and this beautiful client on Friday last week. You know, he was the lead in an English series, the lead, and they've decided not to pursue it because wow. they can't sell this, this series. But we'd negotiated for over two and a half months, the deal, and I had to make the call to him, and he's in Scotland at the moment, and just explain. They said one thing, but another thing's going to happen. Mm. Yeah. Siri's just not going to be picked up, so it's heartbreaking. Mm. You hate it. Yeah. You can hear it in their voice. It changes their life, you know. They've made plans in their mind. As much as you try and forget about it, yeah. you don't. You're going, I could... I could do this, I could do that, I can give security to my family, maybe. Um, y- y- all of these wonderful things. I got so close, but not close enough. Yeah. What advice have you got for actors who, during those lean times when they're not working, what should yeah. they be doing? Look, the most important thing you can do 
is obviously pay the rent, pay the bills in whichever way you do, but don't forget the end game. Don't forget what you started off with. And, you know, you're not working in in a clothes shop or a bar or, or a cafe. That's not what you are. You're an actor first. Keep yourself positive. Keep talking to your agent. Keep doing classes if you can afford them. Keep yourself feeling as good as you possibly can about the next opportunity because it'll come along and you've got to be ready. When it comes along, when that moment, and there, there are moments in actor's career, when be ready for it. Be as prepared. Uh, it's, it, it, it breaks my heart sometimes when I see that actors just fade from the industry without making the decision. Yeah. Either I'm going for this and this is what I am or I'm not going to do this. This is my decision. Where they fade, it's it's um, it's sad. Yeah. It's an occupation which requires a lot of resilience, isn't it? And it's, yeah. uh, if you haven't got that... And it's hard because you're talking about people if they're really good at their job is that they're wearing their emotion on their sleeve every day. You know, you you cast that in someone so that they can do that on set ten times in a row. And it's a difficult life for them when they they follow an emotional path as a human being and then to be told you've got to be resilient as well. Mm. You've got to be strong. You've got to be able to cope with it. Well, we're, we're enthusing them to be what they are and then we're giving them conflicting messages about but be strong. Yeah. We see uh, so many actors now on, on sites like Instagram. Mm. They seem to be developing a brand for themselves. You know, mm. What's your opinion of social media and how important is that to the actor to, to have a profile on, on that platform? Well. <laughs> Does it work? It works, I believe, when actors get to a certain level and they can utilize that social media. Does it ever get a client and actor work? I've yet to see one instance of an actor getting work because of their brand. This is sometimes taught in schools and right. I yeah. don't acknowledge yeah. or understand what it, what it is they're trying to convey. How can you say to someone that's 22 years old and hasn't lived a life that you've got to concentrate on what your brand is. Yeah. Your, your brand? You, you Firstly, we're hiring you because you're an extraordinary actor of a huge range. You're going to try and brand this person that's got an extraordinary exemplary range of, of emotions. Show me how you do that because a brand is very specific. A brand is about colors and it's about fonts and it's about standing in the industry. It's about its social, economic place in our lives. I cannot see how you can do that with a young, aspiring actor. I, I understand there's influencers out there. I understand there's social, there's people that are making good livings out of social media. It's not an area that I'm a part of, yeah. that I'm drawn to towards, that I never have been. Um, so as far as an actor creating a brand around themselves, I 
don't see that yeah. ever working for me. So use it to appease the fans, you know, show them a photo every now and then. But yeah, there, but and otherwise... there's a myth. There's a myth about actors being cast because of the number of fans that they have. Right. It's it's not true. That yeah. may contribute towards a small part of the network decision. But it's about you, how good you are as an actor. It's about all the things you can bring to that role first. Yeah. I'd be much more enthusing them to do more acting classes with great coaches um, or having life experiences than spending a lot of time with their social media being outraged about something. And surely the grosses at the end of each week, um, what a film has taken or whatever will... That, that certainly influence. helps. Yeah, it, it doesn't... It, it, that certainly helps on an international level. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm. yeah. What's... Just one last question. Of course. What is the best part of your job? Um, I, I can't say if I've got one in particular best part. But when I see extraordinary work by wonderful developing actors... Uh, and I could see the potential of where they could go. Um, when I see them understanding, you, you can actually get a, a point of clarity from an actor where you can see in their eyes how they're learning their trade along the way, where they get where their eyeline should be, where they, you can hear in their voice what they're doing with a scene or how they're placing their emotion. I love watching the progress of developing actors but I also at the same stage love you know I can pick those scenes with international artists that I represent and I can pick the scene that I know they love the most because it's generally the best scene in the film mm. um, I love those moments when those few and far between moments where you have that extraordinary aha moment where you're able to go you got it it's yours. Yeah. Steven Spielberg cast you. Yeah. Um, they're some of the most marvellous. And reading great, great scripts, Peter, I, I'm, I still love discovering a great idea, beautifully crafted by a writer. And hence you fall back then on your producing skills. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, I, I've just produced a... Uh, a web series which is uh, very successful now um, for ABC it was funded by the funding bodies uh, it's had something like 500,000 hits in a, a, a four days five day period and I'm still thrilled that I can be developing be it a, a feature film script or a television series or be lucky enough to be involved in a web series mm. and learn all all the things that come with that that's the be I think that I'm answering my, your question yeah, yeah. I think the best thing about my business is that I've got the opportunity to keep learning every day well it's an industry that keeps evolving isn't it you know we've got the, the streaming services the web series you've got to constantly reinvent actors as yeah. well as yourself reinvent themselves and yeah, my, embrace a new world my dad was an ex-boxer and he'd say keep on your toes Mark keep on your toes and, and that's that remains.
and shine your shoes. Shine your shoes. <laughs> Mark Morrissey, you, uh, thank you for your uh, wonderful insight into the world of an agent. Um, your agent, your actors are very fortunate to have you uh, as a nurturer and a, a, a guide in, in their career. So um, thanks thank for you. talking to us today. Thank you, man. Thank you. Season two of Stages continues to offer insightful conversations with our finest creatives. My guests offer valuable reflection on their career, process, and all that matters to them. There are also 24 episodes available from the Season 1 archive. Why don't you take a look? Better still, have a listen. And don't forget to subscribe to Stages, where you won't miss out on any of our weekly guests. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next time.